Hello and welcome to the Interactive Investor Podcast, where we discuss matters of investment interest. I'm Richard Hunter, Head of Markets, and in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Richard Buxton of Merriam Global Investors. He'll be known to many of our listeners as a well-known city name, and he's been, um, he joined it at Merriam Global Investors as Head of UK Equities in 2013. In early 2019, he announced his intention to step down from the CEO role, which he took on in 2015, although he has remained with the business as head of UK equities. Richard was previously at Schroeder's, where he managed the Schroeder UK Alpha Plus Fund for over 10 years. Prior to Schroeder's, he spent more than a decade at Bearing Asset Management, having commenced his investment career in 1985 at Brown Shipley Asset Management. Richard was awarded the Outstanding Contribution to the Industry Honour at the Morningstar OBSR Awards in 2012 and has a degree in English Language and Literature from the University of Oxford. So first and foremost, a warm welcome to you, Richard, and many thanks for joining us. No, not at all, Richard. It's, uh, it's nice to talk to you and, uh, and your audience. Now, a recent article of yours, which really did come to our attention because uh, it asked some intriguing questions. It was entitled Debt, Equity, Dividends and Stakeholders. And, and your opening gambit was basically that obviously we're, we're kind of all focused on the immediate COVID-19 challenges. Um, but perhaps investors in the government uh, need also to begin thinking about the longer term consequences of what we're living through and the first point that you get on to uh, was the relative attractions uh, of debt and equity capital in order to finance businesses could you give us a, a brief rundown on, on where we, you were coming from with that opening thought yeah very much so um well as many of you know um companies in effect are incentivized to use quite a lot of, of debt to cap to uh, finance their business because you can offset interest payments on debt uh, against tax. So, you know, for many, many years, there's been a sort of incentive to, to borrow and to minimise the amount of equity capital because obviously the borrowings then juice up through leveraging the returns on equity from the equity. Um, and the most extreme example of this clearly is, you know, borrowing to buy back shares to minimise your equity base and maximise your leverage, because that way you really juice the returns to equity. But the point I've always made is that, you know, equity is the permanent capital of a business and debt is always financed. It has got to be repaid. Uh, you don't know whether the banks will be there to lend to you again when you do need to roll over borrowings. You don't know what interest costs you're going to uh, face. So, you know, Carnival, the cruise liner, has gone through this crisis from borrowing at 1% to borrowing at 11.5%. Uh, you know, that's kind of quite a difference. Um, so, um, post the financial crisis, I actually went and met with a senior figure in the Treasury and said, look, should you not sort of try and reduce this tax incentive to maximise debt relative to equity? Um, and he just, uh, he actually laughed and, and said, well, we've, this is so embedded in um, all the ways that companies structure themselves. You know, trying to unwind that in a way that's revenue neutral to the government, kind of dream on. But I do think that boards should look at, well, what is, in a world where activity can stop overnight, you know, what is actually the right mix of debt and equity? What is a prudent balance sheet 
relative to, I say, in recent years, we've talked to management teams where they go, well, you know, you UK shareholders don't want debt to be above, you know, two and a half, three times uh, net debt to, to EBITDA. Um, whereas in American investors, they're going, God, you, you Brits, you're wimps, you know, what's wrong with four, five, six, seven times? And, and yet, you know, the moment you have a downturn, it's your balance sheet that gets you every time. It's the debt which is why we're seeing all these companies now rushing to, to raise additional equity. So I think just beginning to get a debate going, both at board level and even at government, about saying, look, um, there's no point having you know, these sort of boom periods and then an immediate collapse in equity markets, and you've got to rush in and, and put all these stabilizers in place. Surely in the long run, it would be better to over time phase out some of these incentives to, to finance with debt in favour of a more equitable balance between debt and equity. Is, is it fair to say that we did have something of a, an opportunity uh, to to address this during the global financial crisis, which of course was uh, getting on for sort of 12 years ago now? Well, very much so. I, I, as I say, that's when I went and talked to the Treasury. And, and I did think that, you know, perhaps people would have learnt their lessons about, you know, the dangers of, of leverage and so on. Uh, at that time, clearly the, the banks, you know, have been forced by regulators to reduce their leverage and have much more capital and so on. Um, but other companies have tended to just default to Magnetic North in terms of, well, as I say, that the way to improve your return on equity is to juice those returns with lots of, of debt and leverage. Um, now, clearly, if you were to reduce the amount of leverage, then actually the returns on equity would come down. And that was the point I was making, that we'd have to accept that you'd have a lower return on equity. You'd probably have lower dividend payments as a, as a consequence. But if in time the entire system became much more stable, surely that's a better outcome. Yeah, that's right. And, and yet we have this irony, of course, of, of um, on average, um, certainly up until recently, we could look at, say, the FTSE 100, which might yield somewhere around 4.5%. Uh, traditionally, US equities uh, tend to yield rather less, despite the fact, as you describe, they've got um, entirely different attitudes to debt. Uh, yes, and, and clearly they have always tended to reward shareholders much more through share buybacks and reducing the share count than through the payment of, of dividends. Now, again, I've always said, well... Um, you know, equity as the permanent risk capital of a business you know, ought to be reward, rewarded over time through dividends. But equally, and we've seen in recent years that the payout ratio has risen and risen in the UK market. Uh, in other words, the amount of earnings cover of those dividends has fallen and fallen. You know, that we've ended up in a situation where, frankly, I'm sure there's a lot of companies who are going, oh, thank heavens, we've, we've got this... Uh, opportunity now to um, miss dividends when we do resume them we'll probably resume them at a lower level because frankly the earnings cover was getting quite tight so again I think already in the US we're seeing people go well hang on you can't have an industry like the US airline industry that in recent years has delivered 45 billion dollars worth of share buybacks to the benefit of shareholders and management and yet the moment we have a crisis they go cap in hand for a 50 billion dollar bailout you know, you can't have this privatization of profits and socialization of losses. You know, this is just not fair. Um, part of the, the, the ongoing debate about, you know, we've got to have a, a slightly fairer form of, of capitalism. And I do think that uh, the, the balance between debt and equity, um, dividend and buyback, 
uh, has really got to be addressed um, in the coming months and indeed years because uh, I, we've talked to companies post-crisis where they've said, well, we fully accept that because we are using government schemes, whether it's furloughing staff or benefiting of business rates, uh, etc., uh, rate holidays, then we accept that the quid pro quo is we, we, we can't just make as a board and management team totally independent decisions going forward. You know, we will have to much more take account of, of all our stakeholders. So, you know, government has looked after empl our employees. We are going to have to look after them. That it can't just all be for the benefit of um, shareholders. We've got to, to look at, at, a, at the wider um, community of stakeholders uh, in, which, um, in which we operate. Um, and again, I think this is all to the good because, as you know, because we've talked about this before, I mean, I was delighted that the, the new governance code that was introduced last year did actually make it very clear that, you know, companies have to have a purpose and it is not about maximising shareholder value. It is about taking into account all those stakeholders, you know, employees, suppliers, customers, the communities in which you operate and society at large. And if this crisis doesn't give a real kick to companies to uh, to really reset their relations with um, uh, the wider community, uh, to address this concern about you know big business rip off Britain fat cat execs, then it would be a, an enormous missed opportunity. We've seen so many companies showing how in recent weeks you know they have managed to you know, help in their local communities they've managed to provide things for the nhs you know if we can't build on that spirit and go look we are all in this together and we've got to not revert to um just it's all about dividends and shareholders and, and maximizing profits we've got to um ensure that that everyone participates in a in a more benign form of cap capitalism going forward uh, it'd be a tragedy if we if we didn't seize this opportunity to make make real change. And, and within part of the mix you so eloquently described there, uh, and coming up a couple of times, of course, was uh, the issue of dividends. We are increasingly getting into a dividend drought situation, either for regulatory reasons, such as where the rug has been pulled from un under the banks and many of the insurers, or simply because companies have decided this is a good opportunity to conserve cash until they know exactly yeah. how the pandemic is going to play out. So do you think companies will take this as an opportunity to uh, effectively rebase their dividends or do you hope that this is actually uh, the perfect opportunity for them to do so? <laughs> very good, very good question Richard. I mean I think as I say Cuffer had got quite stretched, uh, the payout ratio got quite high and, and I think it's entirely sensible given the scale of the, the crisis we're facing and the, and the degree of uncertainty that people should preserve cash first and foremost to protect the balance sheet, protect the business. And then as things become clearer, you know, you can then look towards a resumption of, of dividend payments. There have been some companies like Legal in General who, even though the regulator said, please don't pay a dividend, said, no, no, we are absolutely going to because... We genuinely think if you if you sort of panic at the first sight of trouble, then your cost of equity will rise going forward. We think, you know, all our stress scenarios, we, we come out of this okay. Uh, and the other point is, you know, at the end of the day, dividends to shareholders, people think of them, you know, as greedy shareholders, uh, but actually it is, it is pension funds, it is long-term savers, it's individuals, you know, and, and they do need these dividend income streams. So... 
Uh, you're absolutely right. We've got a dividend concentration now that is extreme in terms of uh, the aggregate amount of dividend that's being paid. It's very heavily reliant on the oil majors now, sustaining those very big dividend payments. So I hope that there aren't companies who, as you say, are going, oh, phew, this gives us air cover to... To, to rebase a dividend when we do come back, because frankly we were over-distributing. If they genuinely can afford to to pay what they were paying, then when you know clarity is is there and visibility, and you you can come back, don't sneakily um, provide an opportunity to rebuild build cover. But I think it is part of this this mix of um, what is the appropriate balance between the the reward to the shareholder. Um, the reward to the to the bank and the bondholder, and the, that which goes to those other stakeholders. You know, should you be paying your staff more in order to ensure that they're they're happy staff and want to uh, want to stay and work for you? You know, I think all of this is going to be part of the mix in analysis going forward. Yes, yes, and an incredibly thought provoking piece, and uh, let's just hope it gets to the right ears. Now, while while I've got you here, Richard, you you've very much been um, a follower of UK banks uh, over the years. Mm. Obviously, we, we saw the US banks a couple of weeks ago um, coming out with a, a fairly stable theme of vastly reduced profits for the quarter and at the same time markedly increased credit impairments. Uh, and of those banks which have reported in the UK so far, uh, we've only got Lloyds and RBS to go at the time of recording. That theme seems to be uh, pretty much uh, repeating itself uh, on, on our shores. What, what do you think the outlook is uh, in general terms for the UK banks at the moment? We all know, and Barclays demonstrated this today with their results, that you know bad debt provision is going to rise materially. We all know that your interest margins are going to fall because of interest rates now being on the floor and yield curves being kept very flat by central bank activity. Um, but the the issue is that these share prices had fallen to you know below 0.3 of book value. You know Barclays book value actually went up in the results today from 260 something to about 284 pence a share. Now the shares had fallen into the 80 p's. Now, there's, there's, you know, when they're in that level, the market is basically telling you uh, we don't believe the share count. We think they're going to have to raise additional equity capital. Now, the whole point about the last 11, 12 years since the financial crisis is that they have built up massive amounts of additional capital, uh, huge pools of liquidity. Uh, we've got these annual stress tests that, believe me, are every bit as bad as you know, that which we are facing today and more. Um, you know, They include sort of... 40% off um, commercial real estate prices, 30% falls in house prices, things that you know, we don't actually anticipate happening um, through this. Whereas the, the, the US banks, by contrast, yes, they've, they've declared big um, you know, uh, provisions and credit uh, impairments, um, but they're trading at book value. And, and so to, to my way of thinking, whether it's the UK banks get tarred with, with European banks who may still have issues in terms of, of capital, but you know, when you're trading at 0.3 book value, you know, there's an awful lot of bad news in that price. So, so you know, we have added to our Barclays position um, a couple of weeks ago and delighted to see that, that the market, you know, analyst forecasts may still have been too high, but the market in terms of the share price had already got to a level where they were thinking it's going to be far, far worse and they're going to need to raise equity. And as they demonstrate that they're not going to have to do that, then, you know, the shares should, over time, rebuild to, you know, 
I'm sure they'll trade at some discount to book value for the uncertainty, but it shouldn't be a 70% discount. The next one we're going to hear from, of course, is Lloyds Banking. It's, it's got the additional millstone around its neck of, of being seen as a, a something of a barometer for the UK economy. Now, what seems like years ago, we were talking about uh, Brexit implications. Needless to say, that's uh, very much gone off the front pages uh, since the pandemic. And yet, there's there's little doubt that um, that's a, a pretty tightly run ship at the moment. Yes, I mean, and this is why it's always been uh, something I've been happy to support because you know their cost income ratio uh, is just way below other banks, and year in year out, they just relentlessly grind down through increasing use of technology that cost income ratio, which gives you a massive kind of buffer to to then be able to deal with you know the credit impairments that that come with with banking and the cycle it'll be fascinating to 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 see the results uh, as you say they're seen as a rightly a bit of a barometer of the health of uk the uk economy because they are such a dominant um, player they lack obviously the investment bank that barclays has which clearly for years people have pilloried barclays for having an investment bank Whereas in these results, they clearly demonstrated the argument Barclays have always made that actually the two are slightly countercyclical. You know, the investment bank has had a stonking Q1 because of volatility in markets, debt and equity capital raising, and you know the commercial, um, the sort of retail business, you know, a bit more subdued. Lloyd's doesn't have that, so it'll be a very pure read on that kind of UK retail and corporate outlook in in the UK. But again, you know, whilst they are not trading at anything like the degree of discount to book value that um, Barclays has, they are at you know a significant discount. So again, my argument would still be that if if things are not as bad as people fear, then actually you know this is still a, a cheap share. Again, we we added to it in the portfolio a, a couple of weeks ago. Marvelous. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you, Richard, and uh, thank you once again for sparing us so much of your time and thank you to the listener and and do please join us next time for the subsequent interactive investor podcast 